<laughs> 鬼岛之音 ，Ghost Island Media。From Ghost Island Media, this is the Taiwan Take. I'm your producer, Emily Wai Wu. This week is the one-year anniversary of the passing of the same-sex marriage law in Taiwan, and today we have an interview with Jennifer Liu, Chief Coordinator of the Marriage Equality Coalition Taiwan. This interview was recorded earlier this year in January. Your host today is William Yang, a correspondent for Deutsche Welle based in Taiwan. Let's hand it off to William. Hey, my name is William Yang, and I'm your host today for this new episode of the Taiwan Take. Today, we talked to Miss Liu about community development in the '90s, Taiwan's first pride parade in 2003, as the LGBT movement gained momentum. The challenges the movement faced with the rise of opposition voices, and now that Taiwan's become the first country in Asia to legalize same-sex marriage, what's the road forward? The struggle for LGBT rights and acceptance in the face of conservative opposition is a global issue, and this is the Taiwan Take. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Hi, everybody. I'm Jennifer. I'm right now the chief coordinator of Marriage Equality Coalition Taiwan. I'm a social worker, feminist, author, and also a Taiwanese. And I have been working in LGBT movement for more than 15 years. So, Jennifer, give our listeners a brief update about the current status of the same-sex marriage law in 2019. I would say we do have marriage right now. Same-sex couples can get married, but we're still fighting for the equality right now and in the future. Okay, so we'll come back here to talk about why we still don't have the true equality that you just mentioned. But first, I want to take a step back in history to reflect on the long road to this progress. The 1990s was an era of activism in Taiwan. Martial law was lifted in 1987, and in the decade ensued. There was a space for political and non-political activism and advocacy. Tell us about this period and how the community was developed. What are the factors that actually allowed the community to grow? I think Taiwan is very lucky. We didn't have、um, so-called sodomy law, so we don't have to go through the decriminalization process. In the very beginning of the movement. The most important thing we need to do was raising the visibility and awareness, and so we did a lot of, for example, press conference and events, panels. But the most important thing,、um, most challenging thing for Taiwan's LGBT community, I think, is coming out. So in the early nineties, still very few gay or lesbian or trans bisexual people can come out. So usually. During the press conference, there was an empty chair, and maybe some experts, professors, and journalists、uh, surrounding that empty chair. And that's the strategy during that time for LGBT organization want to emphasize a lot of LGBT people living in Taiwan, but we cannot come out. And that's like the first few years after martial law was lifted, and a lot of different social movement and LGBT movement start up during that time, and also a lot of policing abuse of power happened as well. So that's encourage LGBT organization like Taiwan Tongzhi Hotline established. So Jennifer,、uh, can you actually provide our listeners a little background about you know what is it like? For the LGBT scene here, you know, we know that there are some early year bookstores and 
social spaces? Yeah, sure. So when I was like a seventeen years old, we didn't have a lot of space to talk about LGBT issue in schools and also in our families.、Uh, I still remember. It was the first time I tried to find a LGBT bookstore called Jingjing in Gongguan area. So I was too scared to ask people where is it, and I still can remember how terrified when I looking for the bookstore. During that time, if you want to go to a lesbian bar, you need some password to <laughs> like call the owner of the bar. And maybe say some secret password, and she or he will let you know、uh, where is the location of the bar. So it's really hard for、uh, LGBT young people to find this kind of information in public. Jingjing was actually the first gay bookstore and also commercial shop across Asia that sells books and porns, or even sometimes sex toys. And it was a pretty popular place for LGBT community members to go there, pay a visit when they were in Taipei. Do you remember reading any books or watching any movies with LGBT themes around that time in the nineties or early two thousand? Of course, there there were a lot of LGBT related movie, but most of them, the end of the story are usually very sad, and so that's. That's why when I was teenager, I feel like being an LGBT is not a positive thing because the story you read, you watch, is always very sad, and your parents will kick you out, and there's no one loves you. For example, there's a lesbian novel called Niñu. It's really good, but it's also very sad, <laughs> and、right. also Niñu.、Uh, You can tell from the title, from the name, it's like a betray your family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't obey your family, your parents. So that caused a very sad tragedy. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Niezi is actually an award-winning novel that was later adapted into a TV series, and the English name of the book is Crystal Boy. So you can see the atmosphere. During that time, that was not very positive. There's no hope to be LGBT used during that time. So when I was young, I feel very lonely and helpless. Until I went to college and joined the Taiwan Tongzhi Hotline, I realized, oh, there is a community and there are some people support you. Do you still remember what drew you to the organization? The reason. I went to hotline is because I was a social work a college student, and at that time hotline was recruiting the volunteer for the phone counseling. But deep in my heart, I was looking for kind of a support system, or I want to know who I am. I want to know what I can look for in the future. I started to participate. Like lots of speech training, and I went to schools.、Mm-hmm. I provide the you know, so-called real person life story,、mm-hmm. like a real person library, and so that's the beginning of my journey in the movement. 
I I didn't see myself go to a movement or participate a movement during that time. I actually just want to know who I am, and I want to find a safe space for myself. So the self discovery period that you just mentioned was kind of reflecting what Taiwan's LGBT community was going through at the time. And all these discovery basically led to the culmination of the first Pride Parade in Taiwan in 2003. And now we actually have the biggest Pride Parade in Asia. What was your involvement at the time, and how did this come about? Wow, that's um, that's a long time ago. <laughs> I actually grew up with LGBT movement in Taiwan, so I I still remember in 2003. I was a college student still. I didn't go in the very first time, but a lot of my colleagues told me that the, the organizers they were very scared. There is no one show, and so they even prepared some kind of mask for the participants because still very few people want to come out during that time. They expect probably around one hundred or two hundred people to come, but at the end, actually, there were almost a thousand participants. So people are very inspiring by the result. But in the first year, the budget of the Pride Parade came from the Taipei City government.、Right. So after the parade, some city councilor actually make announcement that and criticize that the city government shouldn't promote this kind of sensitive issue. So after the first year, every year's pride parade actually fundraised by themselves and from the civil society, and even till now, over two hundred thousand participants. This kind of huge event, still a lot of like a fundraising work need to be done. A few years later, you became the chief organizer of the parade. Was it hard to fundraise from Taiwan's civil society? You know. Yeah, I start to become the organizers of the Pride Parade in 2007, and then I was also the chief coordinator of Pride Parade in 2010.、Um, in the beginning, it was very hard, and because the private sectors saw this issue as still very sensitive. So people didn't want to show their position during that time, but till now it's better, especially after we passed the law. So right after the law, you can see lots of people ask you, "How can we help? We want to participate." I I see the huge changes in these decades. It's very amazing. So now let's talk about the two thousands. The two thousands are years of organization, education, and lobbying as building the path to gender equality. Is that right? I I love this period the most <laughs> because we didn't have a very systematic opposition at that time, and especially the Gender Equity Education Act provide us an opportunity to go to schools, college, and share our own stories, our real life stories. Right.、Mm. It was legislation in two thousand and four that required all schools, elementary through high school, to include gender equality, sex education. And gender orientation into the national curriculum. Can you still remember the first time that you went to a school and shared the story with the school? I was terrified because it was an accident. <laughs> There was one night I was at hotline and I heard my colleague Zhi Wei said, "Oh, we need a lesbian to go to school with us. Who who will be free tomorrow?" And Zhuwei was like, "Okay, so we are going to Miaoli tomorrow. We will departure tonight." And I, I was like, "What? Right now?" 
so that was the first time. And Miaoli is not very modern or progressive city. Right.、Uh, I grew up there, so <laughs> I know how conservative it is. But actually, my first、uh, my first time experience was really good.、Uh, we went to a high school. It's Zhuolan Gaozhong.、Okay. Zhuolan is a small town. Right. And in the morning, there was a workshop for the teachers. So I share my personal stories, like when did I discover I'm a lesbian? So my coming out story to my parents, and I actually just came out to my mother during that time. The teacher, they didn't really understand what is LGBT, but the attitude was really friendly, and they sent a box of star foods for each one of us. So I was like, oh, it's a good job. So I can say I'm gay. And also, I I got some gifts. Yes. It's really good that you can say who you are, and also people open up to share with you their questions. And you can see the attitude is changing through our communication and conversation. How did the students actually respond? During this kind of speech or workshop, we always ask a question that: How many LGBT people you know in your lifetime? Ten years ago, I think maybe ten percent of them know someone who is gay or a lesbian. During that time, a lot of students ask the question like: Why you became lesbian? And usually, teacher asks about: Is there anything? That happened to you, for example, sexual harassment, or is there anything wrong with your family function? This kind of a little negative question. But right now, a lot of people ask me about how could I support my LGBT friends who, right now, may be suffering about coming out to their parents or family members, or how could I. Use what kind of communication strategy to talk to someone who not support these issues? So you can see more and more people know someone who is gay or lesbian, and more and more people they want to support and become one of the support system. And it's a it's a huge changes in Taiwan. And that was 2004. And by 2009, we were beginning to see opposition voices forming in a highly organized and systematic way. What happened? How did this consolidated opposition emerge? It's a global trend.、Right. It's not only in Taiwan.、Mm-hmm. We can say there are like right-wing conservative evangelical churches. Globally, they are the core group of like anti-LGBT groups、mm-hmm. everywhere. At that time, we already have Gender Equity Education Act for five years. There were some like materials delivered during that time, and so some people in churches saw that, and they feel like they disagreed with the narrative inside. So they went to Hong Kong to go to find a very important anti-LGBT leaders, pastors in Hong Kong, and that's the reason why Taiwan's conservative evangelical churches start the connection with similar groups from the United States. So here's some statistics about the Christian community in Taiwan. The Christian community make up about three percent in 1999, and by 2015 they grow to about six percent. That's actually not a very big change. How did their voice become so powerful? How important do you think that link 
to the U.S. played in the fight against LGBT right advancement? Well, this is a very good question because a lot of people from other countries, especially the people from United States, ask me the question that why Taiwan has not a lot of Christian percentage, but they make a huge influence. I would say it's because the anti-LGBT groups in Taiwan they usually don't reveal their identity as Christian. So they say they are parent, concerned parents. They are concerned teachers, and they are the, like educational experts. They know if they say they are Christian immediately, people in Taiwan become a little bit defensive. Because Christian is not a huge population in Taiwan, but they launch a lot of anti-LGBT events agenda in Taiwan. I would say this kind of right-wing conservatives they learn the strategy from the United States, and for example, you can see in 2018 the referendums, the advertisement, the commercials, the narrative exactly the same as the Prop A in 2018 in California. They Kind of upgrade themselves. I mean, the anti-LGBT organizations in Taiwan. They did a lot of research to find the right message to communicate with the people in Taiwan. And also, before their anti-LGBT agenda, Christians usually don't go to Taiwan's local temples. But they they know if they want to expand their power. They need to reach out to regular people who are not Christian. So in November 2018, there were five referenda being passed and actually voted on across the island in Taiwan about same-sex marriage and also gender equity education. Three were proposed by the anti-marriage equality camp, while two were proposed by the marriage equality camp. And Jennifer, maybe you can. Help to clarify a little bit about what are the main messages and the arguments. Actually, there were ten questions, and five of them relate to same-sex marriage and gender equity educations. And、uh, the reason I want to highlight this is because this caused a very confusing situation during that time. So basically, like what happened in the United States, the anti-LGBT organization, the groups, they want to limit the definition of marriage. So one man and one woman, one wife and one husband. This kind of narrative, as they always use, not only in Taiwan but also in the United States and other countries. So the referendum actually wants people to vote for set up a separate law. So that means you don't change the current law. They want to so-called protect the current definition of marriage. But of course, we all understand that if you change the current law, the current marriage system still there. It just includes same-sex couples. They can use the system. Right. So they kind of they were using people don't understand this situation to manipulate people's fears,、right. especially why they want to link to gender equity education. Because according to the polling, if you only talk about two same-sex adults relationship,、mm-hmm. general public usually say, "Okay, this is not my business."、Mm-hmm. As two adults issues,、right. it's not my business. I don't care. But 
that's why they want to link uh, some sex marriage issue to gender equity education because they want to use people's irrational fears mm-hmm. about our so-called next generation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you can see from their advertisement, the advertisement is kids draw a painting and yeah. then come back home say, "Mom, teacher told me girl can get married with girl, boy can get married with boy. So I want to get married with girl when I grow up." So if someone don't really understand gay or lesbian or these issues, they might be terrified by this kind of narratives. And also the the narratives also include that the parents have no right to reject this kind of education. The strategy actually worked. Right. The fact that they localized these messages and tied it to the very traditional family values that are, you know, very important to the older generation in Taiwan. Yeah, exactly. But during the referendum, I think that was the biggest coming out wave in Taiwan ever because there's a voting. It's very sad that your life to be put on the ballot and mm-hmm. say. If you are qualified to be a human being or not, mm-hmm. it's very harmful. Mm-hmm. But however, because that linked to a lot of people's life, so people start to talk about that, and you can see the huge momentum in the community, not only in LGBT community but also younger generation. And you don't have to be gay or lesbian. A lot of people they care about these human rights issues. They want to participate, and I see a lot of. Positive part about the referendum, although the result was not really good, and、uh, some tragedy happened、right. after the referendum. Right, right. But I would say it's been thirty years. Yeah. Compared with the United States or other countries, sixty, seventy years, Taiwan changed so fast. After thirty years, we become the first in Asia, and we we become the country that legalized same-sex marriage in thirty years. And the result of the referendum, 3.5 million people support this issue, support gender equity education. With that very limited resources, compared with the opposition, I think it's amazing. So, the anti-marriage equality camp ended up getting about seven, over seven million votes. That's about roughly seventy percent of the eligible voters during last election in 2018. The reason why they got so much financial resources was a chairwoman of a huge corporation here in Taiwan called HDC donated millions and millions of dollars to the campaign, so I, that I think the number is nine mil billion.、Right. Yeah, okay.、Yeah. There was a big disparity between the resources, and that's why a lot of the airtime was being dedicated to the anti-marriage equality camp. I think the most important thing we have learned during the referendum process is we did a lot of research. Right now, we understand how to build up a new narrative to communicate with、uh, general public in Taiwan. And the very important values of Taiwanese society are respect, harmony, and help each other. So. Unfortunately, the fact is, people don't care about human rights in the society. So we need to rephrase our narrative. So try to link to the values people care about. How could we build up a respectful society? How could we help each other, even we belong to different community?、Mm-hmm. So how could we create a harmony、mm-hmm. atmosphere in the family and the community and in the society? 
And this kind of narrative sounds like very conservative, but actually can open up a communication channel between the LGBT community and the like a mainstream society. And in the end, in May 2019, despite、yeah. all the challenges and obstacles, we still got the bill. What do you think was the defining characteristic that made it possible for Taiwan to still be the first country in Asia to achieve this amazing goal? It's very overwhelming that、uh, we went through legislature process and then、uh, Supreme Court interpretation and then referendum and then went back to the legislature process within three years. Taiwan's situation is very unique. I think the most important reason Taiwan can be the first in Asia is democracy. Of course, during these three years, I don't remember how many rallies we organized. We feel like we we live on the street, <laughs> so probably every month、mm. or every two months、right. we had a huge rally. When I say huge rally, it's not a thousand, two thousand people.、Yeah. It's like a ten thousand or one hundred thousand people.、Yeah. So the biggest one we had two hundred fifty thousand people. So the rallies that shows the importance of democracies to speak out and to push the government.、Mm-hmm. To move forward.、Mm-hmm. Oh, I want to highlight one thing. We kind of proved that LGBT values cultures can coexist with Asian traditional culture、right. together. Because a lot of people arguing that oh, LGBT is a Western concept. We don't have gay or lesbian here in our traditional Asia. But we proved that we we are Taiwanese. We belong to Asia, and we can that same as couple to get married. And the country is still working on, and everybody is still alive. So I think we opened up an opportunity for other Asian country to talk about that. Well, Taiwan will always be the first country in Asia to legalize same-sex marriage. No one can take that away from us. But it hopefully won't be the only in Asia to actually do so. Looking across Taiwan's neighbors, Jennifer, who do you think is likely to be the next country to also legalize same-sex marriage? Um, personally, my prediction <laughs> might be Japan. Taiwan and Japan, we share very similar legal system, and also we have similar like a social culture.、Mm-hmm. So,、uh, not only in terms of the legal changes, they can use Taiwan as a reference, but also how could we communicate with the society? What kind of narrative they can use? What kind of message they can deliver? I think we can learn a lot from each other, and of course, we will support them and help them as much as we could. And so,、uh, like you mentioned, even though there's already same-sex marriage now in Taiwan, there's actually no true equality. What do you mean by that? What is lacking right now in the current same-sex marriage bill? First of all, we are using a separate law. That means heterosexual couples in Taiwan and a same-sex couple. We are using different law. It's not a equality, of right, course, right. and also, for example, co-adoption rights. As a married same-sex couples like me, I cannot adopt kids anymore. So, to clarify a little bit, right now, any unmarried LGBT citizen in Taiwan are still qualified to adopt kids, but once they enter into a marriage under the current same-sex marriage bill, 
they're only allowed to adopt the biological child of their spouse, which basically limits their right to adopt. How do you think we can improve that? Of course, this regulation is not what we were expecting for, because during the marriage law, we're under the discussion in the parliament. We understand that as a government role, they need to do some compromise. Mm-hmm. However, we want to make sure that uh, same-sex couples uh, still can co-adopt kids together. Because, for example, right now we do have several cases that one individual who are gay or lesbian who adopt kids already. They cannot get married. They are afraid of getting married because they are afraid of losing、uh, their adopted kids at this moment. So we still think it's a violation and it's not equality yet.、Right. So we want to change the law very soon in the future through、uh, lawsuit cases appealing or lobbying in the parliament. And from my understanding, another concerning issue right now is. About transnational marriage, because currently under the law that we have, only foreign spouse from 26 countries that have also legalized same-sex marriage are allowed to enter into a marriage with a Taiwanese citizen. But we actually saw a lot of couples with the spouse actually come from countries in Southeast Asia, from Hong Kong, from、yeah. Macau, and even from China. And they don't qualify for getting married here in Taiwan. Yeah, especially we are the first in Asia. If you fell in love with someone from Asia, <laughs> right now you cannot get married in Taiwan. So it's a very very weird situation and create national discrimination.、Mm-hmm. And if you come from other so-called progressive countries, you、mm-hmm. can get married here.、Mm-hmm. And it's not regulated in the marriage law. It's because our immigration law.、Right. So we want to change that immigration law and also the artificial reproduction rights. And in Taiwan, still only heterosexual couple they can use the artificial reproduction technology、mm-hmm. in Taiwan,、mm-hmm. and because you need to be diagnosed for some disease, cannot、mm-hmm. pregnant、mm-hmm. by Taiwan's doctor.、Mm-hmm. Um, but as a lesbian, I. Physically, I can get pregnant, but socially, I cannot. Right, right, so,、right. Um, so we still need to try to change the law through the lobbying、mm-hmm. uh, process.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the LGBT community, there is the transgender、yeah. community that we actually don't really talk about much here in Taiwan. What are some of the works that? Are already underway regarding transgender rights here in Taiwan. Yeah, I think、um, that's a long-term issue that trans issues has been ignored for many years. The organization I'm working for so long,、uh, Hotline. We do have transgender working group, and we organized the very first trans march before the Pride Parade in 2019. So I think that might be the biggest trans Pride Parade in Asia as well. Over 2,000 participants gathering in Ximen, the very popular queer area in Taipei.、Right. So people start to notice that, and more and more people understand、uh, we need to focus on trans issue more. The awareness and visibility of trans activists, I think that's very important. We need more discussion and more communication in the society because 
I've always said marriage equality is not the destination. It's a starting point for Taiwan to talk about that, to share your story, to let people understand who you are, and that's the beginning of the conversation. Because still till now, a lot of people ask me, "How could I get married but not coming out?"、Mm -hmm. So you can see how difficult. For lots of people to show who they are, and people are used to stay in the closet, and people are used to don't talk about their identity or share their、uh, relationship stories. So we need to provide more safe space for them to talk about that and support them to talk about themselves to the society or their friends and family or community.、Mm. Okay, so finally, I'm wondering what message you would like to give to the LGBT community, both in Taiwan and around the world. Wow, lots of words want to say, <laughs> but I, I think the most important thing for me is keep on going because even in Canada, United States, or in some countries in Europe, they passed the bill, the marriage equality bill, for many many years. But there are still a lot of discrimination, so we still have a lot of work to be done. So keep on going. This is not the end. Yeah, keep on going. Not only in Taiwan, but every country, we still have lots of work to be done. And before we go, what's next for you? What can we look forward to seeing in your work? Changes takes time, and so we will keep on our communication project. Not only in Taipei or major city, but we try our best to expand our influence to other parts of Taiwan. And also,、um, we have a very interesting project in the future. We want to train more people to run the office,、uh, more LGBT candidates. In the futures, because during the campaign, we found that we don't have a lot of allies in politics. The law we have right now is still not safe yet. So, if we don't have more friendly politics, this political environment could be changed immediately through all kinds of election. So, we want to train more young people who are LGBT friendly or who are LGBT and run the office, hold the position everywhere. I see this as a breaking point for Taiwan because through this year's international work experience, I realized that. LGBT issues could be very important issues for Taiwan to use to participate internationally. And although we are excluded from the international level for many many years, but I think LGBT issues will be a very important tool for us to be seen and participate. And of course, we want to record and also remember more and more real LGBT. Stories. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for spending your time with us. Where can people look you up on social media? I have my personal、uh, Facebook fan page, Jennifer Lu Lu Xinjie, and Marriage Equality Coalition Taiwan. Also have a fan page on Facebook. So if you are interested in following my activism journey, so welcome follow me. And my name is William Young, and you can find me on Twitter at w i l l i a m y a n g one two zero. And this is the Taiwan Take. This has been a Ghost Island Media production, based in Taipei, Taiwan. This episode was produced by me, Emily Waiwu, edited by Yu Chenlai. 
with assistance from Sam Robbins. Brand design by Thomas Lee. Thanks for listening. See you next time for another Taiwan Take.